0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be back here. It's always frustrating to come when Skip's not here, you see. But uh, I'm so anxious to spend time with him again. But I sure appreciate this warm welcome. But let me be very candid. Um, Well, let me ask you. I know a lot of you have come from different places because of the radio and so forth. How many of you in the audience are in the full-time ministry? Can I see a show of hands? Let me ask another question. How many of you in the audience have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? That's better. Now let me ask the other question again. How many of you are in the full-time ministry, whether you know it or not? (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. But I would like to, you never want to start without prayer, and I want to tell you very candidly for tonight, I need your prayers, and you'll see why in a few minutes. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have brought each of us to this point in time. We know that there's no coincidences in your kingdom, that we're all here right now by your divine appointment. And Father, we would ask that by your Holy Spirit, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives this night. As we commit this evening, and ourselves, into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me start by being very, very candid. This is a very difficult presentation for me to make. for a number of reasons, because I know what's on your hearts. Uh, There's some things we need to cover, and there are things that are very difficult for me to cover. Most of you know that my my, my background has been in the strategic community. I, I, I was a technical nerd in high school, but when I went to college, when other people were in college, I was passing in review on Warden Field at the Naval Academy for whoever was visiting Washington that particular Wednesday. Took my commission in the Air Force, and I was in the strategic community for some 30 years, um, think tanks, and I was chairman and CEO of six different public companies. Four of those were defense contractors, so that was in my blood. So I'm not an America basher, and so as I watch what's going on, not just the last few years, the last few months, I stand stunned. Because with our intelligence resource and whatever, we have a pretty good grasp on what's going on, and I tell you, it's pretty serious. So this is a difficult time. I'm not going to spend too much time on the problem, because I think every one of you is participating in the pain. Whether it's the loss of retirement, loss of savings, loss of a job, whatever, we're facing some very difficult times. And so uh, I want to... There we go, okay. As I travel, there are, we usually what we usually do when we have time, we have a question and answer period. After we do a, an hour presentation in an evening service or something, we'll then have a and a period. And when we do that, there are two questions that we can predict always comes up in any large Q&A. The first is, where is the United States in prophecy? And all kinds of characters have written all kinds of books on their speculations. I take the Scripture very, very literally in this regard. But that is obviously anyone that's studied eschatology realizes that all the major players are very well identified and were conspicuous in an absence of mention. So that's a, a very reasonable question. But there's a second question that's a close cousin of that that also comes up. Why hasn't God judged America? The more spiritually mature you are, the more that puzzles us because we've become the primary exporter of everything God abhors. The more you know about America looking at it through God's eyes, the more puzzling it is that we haven't been judged. Billy Graham quipped so cleverly some years ago, many years ago now, that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a great soundbite, but it's it's right on the money. Thomas Jefferson said virtually the same thing back in 1781. He says, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever. Now, most of us that have to feel these questions usually hide behind Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, where God promises Abraham, bless them that bless you and curse them that curse with you. And it's the United States commitment for Israel's right to exist that may have been a, an umbrella sheltering us from an overdue judgment. That's a perception that many of us seem to share. But things are changing. Let's take a quick look. We could go through all kinds of shocking statistics. I'll spare you most of those. I'll give you a few to give you a perspective. Paul, most people know Paul Volcker. His summary, what this crisis reveals is a broken financial system like no other in my lifetime. This is Volcker speaking, former uh, chairman of the Fed. Normal monetary policy is not able to get money flowing. There's been a leveraging in the economy beyond imagination. The trouble is that even with all the government intervention, the market's not moving again. All these things they've been doing aren't working. They continue doing the same things over and over and over again. They're not helping. This all was predicted. If you study the debates in the Congress, been debated for 30 years, they saw it coming. The Community and Reinvestment Act of 1977, that's when Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were encouraged to subsidize subprime loans. Because it was a popular thing to do. There were a number of people on both sides of the aisle that were screaming, we got to fix this or it's going to lead to a major disaster. They've been saying that for a 30-year period, not just in the last few administrations, by the way. This goes way back. But there are two guys... That blocked any repair. Barney Frank, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, and Christopher Dodd, these two guys who chaired the respective committees on both the House and the Senate, blocked any attempt to repair this because they were on the take. They were being funded by these uh, agencies, and you can go—you can go through the rhetoric. You can find it on the news. You can go look at YouTube and see the recordings of. Uh, of, of person after person trying to repair this, blocked. There was an act passed in 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act, because they recognized way back in the thirties that there are conflicts of interest in granting credit or lending and the use of credit that's investing. Those are two different uses of money and they should not be done by the same institution. Depository institutions possess enormous financial power by virtue of their control with other people's money. And so they should be limited to, make, to ensure soundness and, uh, and, and competition for market funds and so forth. Securities activities, in contrast, are risky intrinsically, leading to, could lead to enormous losses, of course. Depository institutions are supposed to be managed to limit risk in contrast to the more speculative securities business. And the Glass-Steagall Act was designed and protected us right up until, guess when, 1999 when that was repealed. And we're inheriting exactly what that act was intended to prevent. So those provisions that prohibit bank holding companies from owning other financial institutions were repealed in in November of 1999. So it doesn't end there. It gets worse. If you want a hall of shame, I've often thought I was going to do a PowerPoint with Stalin and Hitler, Barney Frank, Christopher Dodd. And if so, I would add three more. U.S. Senator Arlen Specter, U.S. Senator Snow, and Susan Collins—these are so-called Republicans because they didn't vote their uh, what they should have voted. They prevent. They they ended. They ended the country you and I have grown up in because their betrayal blocked the full review of the trillion-dollar spending frenzy that foreclosed any chance of the U.S. dollar remaining as the world's reserve currency. It was in trouble, but it would have been repairable. This made it sure it would never be repairable. A thousand-page document was not read by any member of Congress, House, or Senate. They signed it without reading it. None of them read it. They signed it. and. Uh, It was posted on the Internet in a form that you could not word search deliberately. Do you see see the the setup here? Before that bill was signed, the actual federal obligations were already over $65 trillion. That's more than the entire gross domestic product of the world, let alone the uh, United States. Obama's administration's so-called economic stimulus package is going to force? They say it's 787 billion. No, 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 no. It's 2.5 trillion this year and 4 trillion more in 2010, increasing the current 10 trillion debt by 65 percent. Gets worse. You read the paper and you keep hearing about trillions. You know, Tip O'Neill made that famous crack. You know, a billion here and a billion there. Pretty soon, you're talking real money. And he's off by a thousand these days. What, how much is a trillion dollars? Does anyone here have any idea? If you were paid a dollar per minute for 60 minutes an hour, for 24 hours per day, 365 days a year, how long would it take you to get a trillion? Dollar per minute, 60 minutes, you know, continuing. How long would it take you about 2 million years? That you get the feeling that a trillion is a big number? Let me give you a better example from one of our gold medallion holders. If you had gone into business on the day that Jesus was born, (laughs) and you lost a million dollars a day for 365 days a year from the time Jesus was born, your business lost a million dollars a day from that point on, it would take you till October of the year 2737 to lose a trillion dollars. You begin to realize those are big dollars. A trillion is gigantic. I could go through other examples, but we're already beyond our ability to imagine it, really, frankly. Now, there's another thing you want to know a little bit about. I won't wear you in detail here, but there's are a thing called collateralized debt obligations. It's a form of security that was invented in the in the 80s and 90s. These are loans that are repackaged as securities. They're first issued in the 80s, and they became the fastest-growing sector of the international uh Uh, securities market, held by thousands of the largest financial institutions around the world. It became the biggest bonanza for Wall Street. Uh, And there are dozens of kinds of these things. People who specialize in these instruments admit they can't analyze the risk factors. They're, They're complex things. There are all kinds of these. Collateralized loan obligations that are bank loans. And then there's mortgage-backed securities. There are uh, real estate. There's they, These come in all, about a dozen different varieties. I won't take you through each one of these. I've got more important places to go. But the point is, these are hybrid securities called derivatives because their value derives from other securities. And the other securities can be other derivatives. So it gets complicated. So these are bundled packages of subprime loans that are now essentially worthless. They're based on the premise that markets would always expand, never contract, and of course that's obviously silly. They're completely unregulated, and they're massively, often fraudulently, overrated by the rating companies that are paid to rate these things, Moody's, Fitch, and so forth. And they're all in trouble and going to court for fraud and mishandling, and I won't take you through all of that here. But if you look at the way these things are compositely leveraged, you have uh, CDOs, a CLO, all these different kinds. And so they're all leveraging the root security, which is a mortgage. Well, how much are they leveraged? Well, they add up to one common estimate here. At the end of last year was about $700 trillion in total, backed up by what? Nine-tenths of 1% equity. That's called leverage, man. Leverage works both ways. Okay? It isn't 700 trillion. The current estimates, it's more like 1100 trillion. These are gigantic numbers. These are numbers astronomers might use, not bankers. Some people say it's the end of money. The money supply in the first 354 years of this country was a trillion dollars, give or take. In 2006, it wasn't until 2006 we needed an extra trillion in cash to, to circulate for our activities. And then, year by year, we start adding more and more. The total credit market today is over 65 trillion. These are trillions, not billions, not millions. So, now what happens here, as you increase the currency, you're debasing it, because you're assuming that there isn't that... There is not a correlative increase in productivity. You're adding more dollars, no added value. That means you're debasing the value of each dollar. As you start doing that, that compounds on you, and you get what's called not only inflation. Inflation is the good news. You can get hyperinflation, which is self-destructive. There have been lots of hyperinflations in history. We know how they work. Let me take one example from my own family. I had grandparents that sold a restaurant to retire. When they, put, when they opened escrow, the money was enough to retire on. When the escrow closed, it was enough to buy one loaf of bread. That was in Germany. In, uh, in uh, Germany, food prices doubled every 49 hours. A loaf of bread in 1920 cost one mark. In 1923, it cost 726 million marks. You say, well, that was Germany in the twenties. No, No, I could go through all of these. They always result in a regime change, okay? Well, the question that's lurking in all of our hearts right now is how long is this going to work? There are a lot of experts, competent, good experts that will tell you that they're hoping this is going to turn in a few weeks, a few months, whatever. There are some, and I'm among them, that does not believe it will turn, bluntly. That's a hard thing... If I don't tell you that, I'm lying to you. That doesn't mean I'm right. I might be wrong. But I would be insincere. So where are we headed? Hyperinflation? That's one possibility. And that one of the variants of that is the Amero, something that George Bush secretly tried to promote behind the scenes during his presidency. And Jerry Corsi, one of our Goldman medallion holders, published a book, The Late Great USA, that blew the lid off that. And that's 600 endnotes in that book documented. This is not a... A, a crazy thing There's a thorough Harvard MBA, Ph.D. researcher that's on, now on staff with World at Daily. Sharp guy, his book, blew the lid off that. Is it doesn't mean it's gone. Cause just because Bush is gone doesn't mean the, the agenda is gone. What they were trying to do might be a good idea. The tragedy was they're doing it secretly behind closed doors. It deserves public debate, and not being done in secrecy. That violates the Constitution. There are increasingly experts that believe not only we are, are we in trouble, it's an agenda that's being pursued. This is deliberate. Now, I'm not quite sure I'm ready to join that camp, but you need to understand that some very competent people are starting to embrace that view. Obama is in a hurry, and he's got an aggressive agenda. Let's take a quick look at what's going on in our country. An interesting analysis came out uh, on the 2008 elections. The number of states the Democrats were were 19, the number of states the Republicans uh, uh, won were 29. That's interesting. The, they represented in square miles of, the Democrats won 580,000 square miles. The Republicans, two and a half, you know, five times that much, virtually. Do that's strange? What's going on here? Well, the population of the counties was 127 million for the Democrats and 143 million for the Republicans. In those counties, the murder rate per 100,000 of the the ones the Democrats won was 13.2. And the murder rate of the counties that the Republicans won was 2.1. What are these statistics starting to indicate here? Kind of interesting. This is all from the School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. In the aggregate, the map of the territory won by Republicans was mostly the land owned by tax-paying citizens of the country. That's their conclusion in the analysis behind these statistics. The Democrat territory mostly encompassed those citizens living in government-owned tenements and living off various forms of government welfare. You see, you've got the consumers and the suppliers split with the consumers in charge. It's sort of, it's like having two foxes and a sheep voting on what they're going to have for dinner. (laughs) Now, I'm sorry we didn't have it available, we'll have it uh, before the end of the month. We did a briefing, two one-hour sessions, on the Twilight's Last Screaming, I'm drawing just a summary of that to give you the flavor of what we're facing without trying to get into the background, because I want to go in a different place. But that, is a, that will be available. Uh, I'll show you at the end how you can get it. It's also summarized in our news journal, which you can get for free for the asking at the end, and we'll t- deal with that. You and I are in a far more serious predicament than the one I've just summarized. I'm assuming, the one I've summarized, you may not have had the numbers, but you feel it in your pocketbook, in your gut, looking at your bank statements or whatever. We have a more serious predicament. There are a number of different wraths of God in the Scripture. There's the eternal wrath, which of course is against sin in all its forms. No problem there. There's what you might call eschatological wrath, as summarized in Revelation 6 through nineteen that wrath of God that's poured out in the end times. Most of us have some sensitivity to that. There's also calamitous wrath, the kind that was poured out in Genesis 6-9, through 9. Noah's flood, was God's reaction, a form of wrath, calamitous wrath. There's consequential wrath, because Paul in his letter to Galatians says, what you reap, you, what you sow is what you reap. So that's another form, you, one could call that consequential wrath. But there's a last kind that's not as obvious that we want to understand, and that's his abandonment wrath. And we'll go through a few examples of that here. You know, Samson, you all know the story of Samson. Remember, just try to picture yourself waking up under Delilah near the end there. He woke, in, in Judges sixteen twenty. Delilah said to him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. You know, the third time she does that. And he woke up out of his sleep and said, I'll go out as other times before and shake myself. He was in for an unpleasant surprise, because the scripture says, And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. Can you imagine Samson, as he began to realize that his strength that he'd come to take for granted, was gone? Didn't know God had abandoned him. Think about that for a minute. How can we tell if God has abandoned us? I preached for years out of 2 Chronicles 7.14, you know, where God says, if my people call by name will do four things, I'll do three. And I've used that arguing for a national repentance. I'm not sure today I can do that. I wonder if he do I know that he has not abandoned us here. You know, and Hosea was sent to give God's indictment to the Northern Kingdom. And the parallel between the Northern Kingdom and the days of Jeroboam II and the United States are astonishingly parallel our commentary on Hosea deals with that but the point, there's a place in it where God says e- Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone Ephraim is the idiom they use 37 times in Hosea it's his figure of speech the synecdoche for the whole northern kingdom it's, it's, it, and it's uh, and it, it, Israel is joined to idols the, the word chavar is yoked to or cleaving to but what is his judgment of Ephraim? let him alone Leave him to his idols. Okay? And uh, that is a painful note of finality. We get the same echo in Revelation uh, 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 21, verse 11. Let him be filthy still. Let him be filthy still. So let him, that whatever predicament is, leave him in there. This is all summarized in Proverbs chapter one, which I'll let me just go through it here. Because I have called and ye ye refused, God speaking, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, and ye have said it not all my counsel, and you would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. God speaking here. Wow. They shall seek me early. But they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsels. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. God's judgment here is to leave them. They think they know better. You've got it. He washes his hands, knowing that we're on that path. The last verse really nails it here. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Wow. Did that refer to us? Well, is there a national... Okay, these are principles, but is there a national indicator that would confirm God's abandonment to our nation? Is there a way we can tell? Well, let's take a look at Romans chapter 1. I have taught the book of Romans... Dozens of times through my 60 years as a Christian, but I have to be honest with you, in only the last few years did I discover what it really said. It says something at one level, but it's really making a much broader point that went by me many, many times, so let's go through it. God says for the... Paul, read it right in, in his book, the Epistle to the Romans... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. He's talking about God is jealous of His role as Creator. I've discovered this, really, when I was doing my Genesis commentary the last time, revising it, getting up to speed. I was stunned to discover all through the Scripture how jealous God is of His role as Creator. As New Testament Christians, we're focusing on His act of redemption. That's great. But His jealousy over being the Creator is preeminent. That's His first base, if you will. And so these are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, get this, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Notice what's going on here? I missed this before. God gives them over to something here. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up. There it is again. Three times in this passage, God makes the point, God is giving them over to what he's about to describe here. Unto vile affections, even their the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. and Likewise also the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that, that recompense of their error which was me. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them... Whoop, there's the third time. God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. And it goes... I always viewed homosexuality as an individual choice issue, individual sin. And I will defend that still today. What I didn't realize is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. It was the public condoning of homosexuality, when you study Genesis 18-19 all that carefully. And I was stunned to realize that what, God's, what Paul is describing here is an indicator that a culture that fails to acknowledge Him as Creator, God will give over as a judgment, that homosexuality is a national judgment. That shocked me to realize the implications of that. Now when I look through the paper, when I see these bizarre goings on, I see something quite different. It's not the individual thing I'm thinking. You see, we always get it backwards. You should love the sinner, hate the sin. We do it the other way around. But we shouldn't. Okay. But he continues, what's the result of this? Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without national affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, get this, but have pleasure in them that do them." Wow! If that's an indicator, we've got a reference point to try to figure out where we are as a nation. And I think we're over the edge. My wife and I have just finished a book. We think it's the most important thing we've ever done. It just went to the press a few days ago. It'll be out before probably, hopefully, before the end of April. The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. and. Um, so I want to shift to a third part of my presentation here and talk a little bit about the remedy to all of this. And it's not financial. We pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, do we, what are we talking about? There isn't one church in a hundred that has any idea what that says. Because most churches in America are amillennial. Let's take a look at this here. Nothing on the heaven and earth is more certain Christ is going to come back to rule on the earth. There are 1,845 references in the Old Testament, 17 books that give promise of the event. There's over 300 references in the New Testament. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are at least eight of a second coming. And yet most people have no idea what that really means. We think of heaven. No, no. Let's get, we'll get to that in a minute here. There are four unconditional covenants in Scripture. The Abrahamic Covenant, the Lamb Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Everlasting Covenant. Every one of these is being challenged. The Abrahamic Covenant is challenged by the world, anti-Semitism, the EU, the UN, challenging Israel, uh, the, the whole, co- the whole co- uh, claim of Judaism. The Lamb Covenant, especially challenged by Islam, the right to the land. These are all out of Genesis, right? The one that is most interesting to me is the Davidic Covenant. It's being challenged by the church. Most people have no grasp that the millennium in Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7. That's what I want to talk about a little. In our, in our Christmas cards, we, quote, we love to quote Isaiah 9, 6. That, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those are not synonyms. One's human and one's divine. The government, is shall be, uh, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. doesn't stop there. Of the increase of whose government? His government. And peace shall be no end. Upon what? The throne of David. What on earth is that? It didn't exist during Christ's ministry. Rome ran things through an idiom man called Herod upon the throne of David upon his kingdom to order it to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will form this well that's Old Testament stuff no let's take a look at the New Testament Gabriel shows up to, with Mary and says behold thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus and he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him what? the throne of his father David has he received it yet? no Will he? Absolutely. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom there shall be no end. The pivotal event of the book of Acts was the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. And James, no, no, the Lord's own half-brother, says, To this agree the words of the prophet is written, After this I will return and will build again, what? Tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again the ruins thereof and will set it up, that the residue of men might seek the Lord All the Gentiles in whose name is called. So the Lord doeth these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. You know, it's interesting. If you have a cheap telescope and you look at a star, you see a star. But you spend a lot of money and get a much better telescope and look at the same star, and you often find out, oh, it's really a double star. That's called resolving power. It's a a mathematical measure of optical uh, ability. That's also true in language. There are often phrases we think are synonyms, and they're not quite. And one of these is the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Most commentators, if you study good, respectable commentaries, will tell you, well, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are synonyms. And I'm here to tell you I don't believe so. I challenge you to challenge what I'm saying on your own studies. Kingdom of God is all-inclusive. includes the angels, things that were created long before the earth. Kingdom of God is all-inclusive. No problem there. But there is a term used only by Matthew, by the way called the kingdom of heaven, and that's misunderstood. It's actually a genitive of source, not a genitive of apposition. It's the kingdom from heaven. That's a denotative term used by Matthew. Matthew uses that term 33 times. He's the only one that does. Mark, Luke, and John use the broader term. But no, that's just a choice that Matthew made. No, because five times he used the term kingdom of God, the broader term, because it fits. And he uses other terms elsewhere. I want to look at this a little bit. This kingdom is mentioned by Daniel in chapter 2 in the, as the fifth of kingdoms on the earth. He had the Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome in two phases, sure. And then a next one. And in the days of these kings, that is the last one, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, it shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms, and shall stand forever. The point is the kingdom we're talking about here is one of a series on the earth, not a fuzzy, fuzzy thing in the sky. Most of you, I know it's a well-taught church, you're familiar with the, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. You all know about this incredible verse 25 where, from this commandment to restore to build Jerusalem. The Messiah is a precise number. Gabriel tells Daniel the exact day that, he would, that the Mashiach the, the, Nagi, the Messiah of the King, would ride that donkey into Jerusalem. And it's one of the most fantastic things. But of course, and that was all in Greek, translated three centuries before the fact. So it's the most, it's the most bulletproof demonstration of the validity of, our, of, of, of the Bible as the Word of God. And so, anyway, three centuries earlier. But the part we're in is not the 69. There's a gap between 69 and 70. Most of you that have studied this know that in this interval is the cross, also the destruction of Jerusalem. That's 38 years' worth. We've experienced that interval has gone on for the better, well, essentially 2,000 years. But we all study the last week, that last seven year period called the 70th week of Daniel. That's what I want to focus on because there's, this is an area that we are approaching. Now, the interval is. Uh, uh, um, I got the numbers at the bottom wrong. I should have caught that. Anyway, the Harpazo does not trigger the 70th week. It, there's a period of time. We don't know whether it's one hour. For 30 years, but there's, a, there's an element of time between the of the, the rapture, and the 70th week. The Seventh week is defined by an enforcement of a covenant by a world leader. In the middle of that 7 year period, he erects an abomination of desolation. And it, it's right in the middle of these three, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. The Holy Spirit did everything. In both the Old and New Testament triangulated this. It's the most documented period of time in the entire Bible. The last half of that seven-year word is labeled by the Lord Himself as the Great Tribulation. It's not seven years, it's three and a half. But the point is, that, and then that's interrupted, at the end of that is Armageddon, which is interrupted by the second coming of Christ. So we, most of you that have studied eschatology, this is familiar ground. If it's not, you really want to study the last four verses of Daniel 9. But what's going on in heaven at this time? Well, the harpazo, we're all up there. The ones that are saved in Christ are, have, have been raptured. We're with Him. Terrific. Then What? Scripture tells you there's a thing called the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. Only people there are people that are saved. But their works are being judged. Ooh. Ooh. What's that all about? Then there's the marriage of the Lamb, not to be confused with the wedding supper, which is on the earth for some reason. But anyway, the Armageddon is interrupted by the second coming of Christ, who sets up His kingdom. Most of you know that. There's the sheep and goat judgments that follow that. The marriage supper, celebrating the marriage. The marriage is in the Father's house. And there's these strange periods of time. I won't get into here. We don't have time. I'm running out. In fact, I've got 30 seconds left. Okay. Um, (laughs) The great white throne at the end of 1,000 years. Then the new heavens, new earth, new down. The point is, what happens at the Bema Seat? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all, you and me, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Well, wait a minute now. I thought we had eternal security. Absolutely. You know, the Calvinists talk about eternal security, but they talk about it in kind of a strange way. Yeah, you, you know, you're saved because if, if you persevere. So if you persevere at the end, then you are saved. You can't find out until you're at the end, so some people call that the experiential, experimental predestinarians. Armenians have the opposite view, only those that persevere. See, they both deny eternal security in a very strange way, each of each thing. Well, it turns out, let's back up a second. Are we secure or not? Can we lose our salvation? We could spend it easily all evening on this. Let me just take one example, and that's out of John. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven to do my own will, but the, but the will of him sent me. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. But you're resident must say, so the responsibility is the Lord's, isn't it? I should lose nothing. But my favorite verses are in John chapter 10. If you, this is an area that bothers you, I want you to jot down John 10 verse 29, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Notice there are two hands involved. His hand is Father's hand. I don't think you would get out if he tried. But I, I'll, I'll pull a Walter Martin on you. If... You can lose your salvation. I have a new name for God. A new name for God. Butterfingers. <laughs> now, you laugh, but that's the point. Your security is not your responsibility. It's Christ, it's the Fathers, and the Holy that You can build your case on any one of those. See, the problem is... There are three tenses. Of, we don't let the students use the word salvation in the institute because it's confusing. You know, Rodemick always say, I, "I I was saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. What does that mean? No, there's three tenses. Past tense, separation from the penalty of sin. Present tense, separation from the power of sin. Future tense, separation from the presence of sin. We call separation from the penalty of sin justification. The minute you accept Christ, you are declared judicially not guilty. You haven't changed yet but you are His. Present tense, that starts when you accept Christ, not before. And it's sanctification, which gives you the power. An unbeliever has no power over sin, you do. You may not exercise, you may stumble, but you have the Holy Spirit. And I don't care what the addiction is, I don't care what it is, you've got power over that, through the Holy Spirit. That's called sanctification. And yet there's a future part, glorification, separation from the very presence of sin. All three of these things are tenses, past, present, and future. They're all tenses of a paradigm of salvation. Once you understand that, you know your justification is nailed. Why? Because it was paid for on a cross 100%. To try to add to that is blasphemy. The Lord did it. It is finished. To tell us that, you know the story. So we have these two For 400 years, we've been fighting the wrong battle. Both these guys are right in what they assert, and they're both wrong in what they deny. What's between these two is a third view, which I'll call for lack of better term, the overcomers which gambles on the fact that you are eternally secure, but it makes a distinction between entering and inheriting. When we signed in yesterday to come here, we signed in at a hotel. By signing in, that gave us the right to enter that room. It didn't give us the right to rearrange the furniture. We didn't inherit it. Because my staff doesn't include Paris Hilton or anything. Anyway. So this the, the thing that... The thing that you're working on is your inheritance. In the Old Testament, inheritance could be lost. New Testament, inheritance could be lost. Both and new. Ask Esau. Ask Reuben. Ask the prodigal son. You can blow your inheritance. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus paid for that. But what does Paul mean? Paul says, I keep my body and bring it under subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Is Paul talking about his, secure, his salvation? Absolutely not. He wrote the book on eternal security. It's called Romans chapter 8. What's he afraid of? He, wrote, he, he, worked, he, he lived his life in panic as a type A paranoid. He was afraid of losing his salvation, his, uh, uh, inheritance. We're all made partakers of Christ that I should hold the beginning of our conference steadfast to the end. Partakers, metakoi, those who shares in the work. If we hold the beginning of our conference steadfast to the end. Big if there. You're if, you're saved, if you're in Christ, you're saved. But, 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 what are your rewards going to be? Well, that procedure is outlined for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For other foundation can no man lay that, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build on this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, or the third, there's two groups here. The, the, the inflammable ones, and wood hay stubble, the flammable ones. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall be declared, because it shall be revealed by fire. Not the guy, his works. Fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. It's the works that are being tried, not the person he's already saved. He's That's why he's before the judgment seat. If any man's work abide which he hath built and he shall receive a reward. Praise God. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. It clearly, from verse 15, nails this, that this is a rewards issue, not a salvation issue in the traditional sense. Man's work, man's work, man's work. But he himself shall be saved, in any case. So I don't want to put you under the law. I'm not talking about Messiah is the fulfillment of the Torah for you. Don't let the well-intended messianics get you confused on that issue. But avoid a works trip. What you dream up, your checklist stuff, don't count. That's the flesh. Only that which the Spirit leads you is what counts here. And sin need not reign anymore in your life. You have power over that through the Holy Spirit. So walk with Him. Don't fall behind or get ahead. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast. Thou hast. I'm going to leave you just with a couple more thoughts, and they'll have cardiac arrest because I'm five minutes over already. Okay. Um, what is God calling you to do? Every one of you is saved. My next question would be, what has he saved you for? He had a reason in it, and each reason is distinctive. What is God calling you to? I'm going to suggest that every one of us are incomplete. Every one of us, God is still working on me included. All of us. We all need to raise the bar on our on our Christian walk. You don't. If you're a Christian ten years, you don't want to have one year's experience repeated ten times. You want to grow, right? Commit. If your growth will derive from a continual, systematic study of the Holy Word of God. So learn your Bible. And if you're not in a small group, find one, join it, or start one. In the 60 years I've been a Christian, the place I've seen people grow is in small groups. And and you don't grow in a 40-minute sermon on Sunday morning. That may be very important for lots of other reasons, but... You grow by being in a serious study in a small group, small enough that people can ask questions without being embarrassed, small enough to hold yourself accountable. That's the way it was done on the seaside with 12 guys years ago. Respond to his calling now. Now, I have a challenge here. I'm going to just drive this through until they pull me off here. Um, I'm going to put something on the screen. If you accept what I put on the screen, you flunk the course. I want you to challenge this preposterous statement. I happen to believe it. We are being plunged in a period of time about which the Bible says more than any other period of time in history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. That's preposterous. That you and I are entering a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about the gospel period. Well, how do you test that ridiculous story, statement? You've got to do two things. You first of all got to find out what the Bible says, not what Chuck Missler says or somebody else on television or whatever. Find out what the Bible is. You cannot delegate that to somebody else. And you need to be aware of our unique environment today, the advanced uh, information appliances that are in your hands already, and the Internet resource. They're incredible resources. The Word of God is more available today than it's ever been in the entire history of the planet Earth. And part of the magic here is to understand the, and exploit the role of small groups. But the second thing you've got to do is to find out what's going on. And you won't on your 10 o'clock news. If you study the 2008 elections, it demonstrates very clearly that you have a media that takes pride in shaping opinions rather than informing them. Their proudest moment was to hide the truth from you during the elections. What is truth, Pilate said. Good question. We need to find out what the truth is. There's only one source of truth. That's the Word of God. We live in the age of deceit. Now, I want to make you aware of the Coining Institute. It's a think tank you can be part of. It's a volunteer organization. You can be part of a lifetime fellowship. It's not a substitute for church. It's a supplement for those that want to do that. It's non-denominational, but very fundamental. It's a supplement, not a replacement for, for anything else you're doing. You get to take university credit courses, if you choose to, on your own clock. You don't have to be at a point of time. You can. It'll take you a couple hours a week to take them, but you, those couple hours can be any time—late at night, early in the morning, whatever's convenient. It's a voluntary think tank for Christians, and it's committed to helping you discover and then supporting you in whatever ministry you believe God's calling you. It isn't necessarily being a pastor. There are lots of other ministries. Whatever God's calling you to, the Covenant of the Membership Commonwealth is to help you get there. And we have two. Koine houses. the publisher. Most of you are familiar with that. Koine Institute is the, the uh, think tank. Consists of three avenues of study. Berean, which, of course, is verse by verse of the Bible. Issachar is our term for those that understood the times and knew what they had to do. From Second Chronicles 12. 30. That's our label for what you might call prophecy and stewardship. And the third leg is from the third commandment. We, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We argue it has nothing to do with vocabulary swearing and all that. No, 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 no. It's ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the king, you better be prepared to represent him competently and faithfully. But I want to... and we, to, to balance your growth in all three, we have a little bronze, silver, gold thing The guys can explain to you out there. But I want to make... One last thing, and then I'll quit because I've already abused myself here. The intell, There's an intelligence database that's available to you. We call it the Issachar database because that's our term for that. It has a worldwide surveillance network feeding it. It has subscription services to all the major intelligence, commercial source of commercial intelligence is in the database. And also all our internal resources available to the ministry are indexed in this. It's organized not by the 10 strategic trends that we're famous for, but about 40 different what we call surveillance sectors. Some of them are geopolitical, some of them are technological, some of them are economic, what have you. But that's the way it's referenced. Everything in the... And the, we're not talking about just text. We're talking about multimedia. And the most valuable ones are what we call bullet briefings, a five-minute multimedia presentation on some topic. But there are all kinds. There's 17 different kinds of things in there. And everything in there has a stub which says what it is and has the tools by which it can be retrieved. So when you have a, an inquiry, we call that a folio, the computer will assemble what's relevant. You do your presentation. It's graded by your class against... Is, did you qualify the data? Is it logically sound? Is it, did you establish relevance? and is it persuasive, that gets filed in the database, and your stub for that gets amended appropriately. Now, it's the interaction of the members with that database that justifies the label of this activity as a think tank. It's not just a school. And so that's what we're all about. We, we have a weekly one-page thing you can get on the internet. It's free of charge. You call it e-news. If you log on to our website, you can sign up for e-news. And once a week, it'll tell you what's happened this week that's relevant. What, there's briefing packages. You need to be familiar with those. They're all out there if you want to take a look at them. It's also a resource to pastors. If you're a pastor of a church and you want to participate, we'll make arrangements. There are ways you can get access to this database. And then there's special reports from time to time. And the, this is also subject to corporate s- uh, support. And you can be a volunteer with Area Rep. If you take a course, you have a live person coaching you all the way through to the end. And there are other specialized things you can do to volunteer. So there's a free welcome package for anyone that wants to get our news journal. Our news journal, by the way, the next one, not the one that's out there now, you can take that too, but the one that's coming out talks about how the Shroud of Turin has been discovered to be a quantum hologram of the resurrection and maybe a window into the creation itself. Fascinating article. And uh, there are other things. Anyway, you can check that stuff out. Uh, if you just get, get a get a welcome kit from the guys, and you can get that free of charge. If you want to join the institute, everything you need for your first year would retail-wise it cost about $400. We usually sell it at half price at $200. Here this weekend we have a, a matching donor that will match, so it's $100. If you want to, if you want to join the institute, find out what it's about and get a little blue handbook and we'll look it over if you like. But if you want to. If you can sign up this weekend, you gotta, you got such a deal. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I'm 12 minutes over, so i got to humbly ask your forgiveness, but let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we do pray, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in every life in this room, Father. We do pray that you would help each of us to grow in grace and the knowledge of Him, that you'd reignite in each of us a new passion for your Word, and guide us in the troubled times ahead. Help us to understand the opportunities that are ahead for the kingdom as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.